This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. I want to let you know about something. Interactive Brokers has a simple app. It's called IBKR Global Trader that makes investing in stocks and options easy. Invest in stocks and options worldwide and access even cryptocurrencies all in a single unified platform. And you can use fractional shares to invest in the stocks you want, regardless of the price, and put even small cash amounts to work. You can scan the globe for undervalued stocks and identify new investment opportunities by comparing global stocks in the same currency. Plus, make deposits in up to 27 different currencies and then automatically convert them into the currency you need. And the best part? Enjoy zero commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs with no inactivity fees or account minimums. Put the world in the palm of your hand. Start investing today at ibkr.com slash global trader. This is something I really want you to check out. So I'm going to give you that URL again. It's ibkr.com slash global trader. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. The CPI is hot. The PPI is hot, but markets, well, they shrug it off. ECB raises rates again 25 basis points in a semi-surprising move, and we have a blackout period continuing for the Fed ahead of next week's rate meeting. So pleasant. And our guest this week, Eric Townsend, host of the Macro Voices podcast. All this and much more on episode number 834 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. for joining me this week on the Disciplined Investor Podcast. I think some really exciting guests that have been here and some great conversations that are not only educational, but I think you could use them in your everyday investing process. It's It's been great. It's been quality. It's been hard hitting. It's been, I, I want to say, authentic. And I'm very pleased at the lineup that we've had so far. We have another great, great guest coming up today. Before we get to that, Happy New Year to all those celebrating the Jewish holidays. Rosh Hashanah passed uh, just a couple of days ago. And next week we have Yom Kippur. So it's a very important part of the Jewish year. And thank you for all of you for joining me. Uh, those of you that don't know, I am Andrew Horowitz. I am the founder and president of Horowitz & Company. And what we do, I think, is pretty simple. We help people with their investments. And... That that isn't the podcast is an offshoot of that, right? The educational component of what we do, giving back so that you have a better idea and understanding of what it is that you could do from the, the aspect of investing and helping yourselves financially in order to get to whatever goal that you have, whether it's a I don't know, you're saving for a wedding, you're saving for retirement, you have college education, you're taking care of a parent, whatever it may be. And one of the things that comes up time and time again with regard to people in general, is this whole aspect of 
of a fear factor, right? Really worried about what is going on in the world, what is happening in the markets, the volatility they see, the news items they see, all the things that go into the the scary headlines and maybe even politics and elections, all the different things that go on and people are scared. Maybe that's you. You know, maybe you're really nervous and, and scared and worried about what is going on with regard to a particular item in the world. Maybe it's China, maybe it's North Korea having a meeting with Russia last week. I don't know. It could be anything out there, and that prevents you from doing the things that you need to do. One side of your brain probably says to you, you know, I know what I should be doing. What I should be doing is, is I should be toning out and filtering all that noise out there and investing for the long haul with certain parameters and maybe even certain structure of my portfolio. I should have also some maybe some hedges on the portfolio. You should, you know, and the other side of the of your of your head is saying, oh no, oh no, no, no. Don't get near that scary thing called the stock market or investments or risk assets. And then fast forward, there you are sitting, looking and staring out your window and wondering, where did the time go? 10 years ago, I said, you know, I'm committed to getting back in. And I, I just didn't. Because things happen. Life gets in the way, right? So, about two years ago, two and a half, well, now it's maybe three years ago, going on three years ago, we talked about something. We talked about this fear of getting into the markets. And, and a lot of people, when they think about reinvesting and getting back, maybe for whatever reason they pulled back, what ended up happening was they thought about, wow, I got to get it just all invested. Well, no, that's what we discovered, talked about, and really had a good conversation about this idea of of this one foot in and one foot out. Because whether it's, you know, you're thinking it's too early, it's too late. Well, you don't have to think that anymore, right? Back in 2020, after the pandemic hit and the market swooshed lower, people freaked out. They didn't know what to do, what, how to get back in. And I said, look, if you're just thinking about getting back in all or nothing, you're probably not going to do it. So we we developed this, this idea of, 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 being kind of in, but yet not in, and eventually getting yourself in with something just as important, a dollar cost averaging program that was two-pronged, and that was based on a time and an opportunity. The time would mean that if there was no opportunity, we would look to invest the portfolio, let's say every month, a certain amount over a period of time. If there was an opportunity that presented itself, like valuations in emerging markets seemed Wow, like you had to get right to them. Or a sell-off in the equity markets that was looking like it was short-lived and a good place to place some money in, that would be a good opportunity to invest. But if that didn't come about, we still would push some money in on a month-over-month basis. You know, markets cratered, what, 30, 40, 50%. And now people were like, what's going on? You know what? I, if I If I look back, boy, was that a great opportunity. But then fast forward, we had the same situation, not as fast, but happened in 2022 where markets cratered and stocks were down 30, 40, 50%. Some of the great names of, 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 our, of our age, companies that were solid were down 40%. And you probably looked at it and said, well, uh, it's not time. It's, it's, it's too early. I'll wait for this to happen. And now you're sitting there going, well, you know, uh, kind of expensive. I'm not going to put my money in there. Now, if in fact you had this dollar cost average program going and set up, you would be putting money in over time. And as similar to what you do 
with your retirement plan, right? Retirement plan, you, you don't really care. You know, you're, you know, you're getting paid. Money's coming out of your paycheck and it's going into your investment. That is a dollar cost averaging program on its own. You didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to think about it. It's set up automatically for you. And that's the way that a lot of people really get back into markets when they've been scared out. So this opportunistic and time-based dollar cost average, one foot in, one foot out, it really sparked some interest from people because I got tons of emails. And I think that right now we're sitting on the precipice of a situation very similar. If in fact we are not at the bottom of a market, and let's, let's agree to that, we're, we're, we're lofty. The markets are a little bit lofty right now. If in fact we are in a situation that things are lofty and we think they're going to come down, what a what better time would there be to, to start thinking about a dollar cost averaging program where you put money in over time, capture the downside that you think may be occurring sometime in the future, the next three, four, five months, or a year, whatever it is, and you can get automatically invested at those low points. Think about that. It's actually a better time to start thinking about it than when things are low, because then you're going to be buying as things go up. Sometimes you need just a plan, a plan to give yourself the confidence to do what you need to do. Sometimes, you know, you need a, a coach. I, I was with somebody last weekend and like, uh, oh, I'm so out of shape and my knees hurt and this and that. And it's overwhelming. I don't know if I could do this. I, I, said, I said, well, what are you do about it? Well, I just don't have the motivation. I'm going to have to hire a coach. But I don't know if I want to do that. I said, look, if you don't have the motivation to do anything about it, you're never going to hire a coach. And the no coach can't give you and instill that motivation, but they can obviously force you to start doing squats or sit-ups, bench presses or curls, right? I mean, do a little bit of cardio, do a little bit of, of strength building. They can do that, but as soon as you let them go, what happens? So you have to at least think about the fact that somehow you need, you need to get the engine started. The process needs to get started, and that usually starts with a plan, a plan at least that long-term you are going to be here, like a goal, right? A simple goal. So um, I want to talk about something we brought up the last number of weeks. Talk about this on DH Unplugged as well. This idea of, um, you know, what was probably going to be with some of these inflation numbers coming out of the disinflation or the slowdown in inflation that we saw over the last several weeks. And we talked about, it. my thought was from all the data that I looked at and the research that we, 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 we uh, focused in on was that the probability was we're going to start seeing some more inflation kick up. And the reason for that was that if you look at the baseline from a year ago, when you do the comparatives and what was happening with price of energy and foods and things of that nature. And clearly, you know, uh, energy will be a topic. This is why I'm bringing on the guest today uh, because he is a, a, an air, he does focus on the area of energy. And, and we, we have this uh, scenario that now all of a sudden the fed is back in play, right? Even though, even though on the 20th, we have a blackout period, they're not talking about things right now, but we have a blackout period until the 20th, which is when they will make a rate decision. Now, the probability resting right now is on no change. 
for the September meeting. Interesting. Data, though, suggests that it could go either way. One and done. You know, pause, then do something in the future, see how things go. But with risk assets moving as they are, wealth, the wealth effect really pushing up pretty high. Housing prices, for the most part, stabilizing commercial real estate, a mess. The banking system strong right now. We flushed out some of the problematic areas. But yet yields, you know, approaching, what, 4.3 on the 10-year. The Fed may say, well, you know what, we may want to just do one more for good measure. Fact is that we are seeing the CPI and the PPI move up. The PPI was much hotter than anticipated. Of course, the markets decided to look at the other side, you know, the underworld, and look at, well, what if we were to strip out some of the key areas that were really hot, like food and energy? Well, then it was kind of under control. It looks like the numbers were getting better. Now, I don't know about you. I don't spend money on food and I don't spend money on fuel. That has nothing to do with what I pay for, nor does it have anything to do with the cost factors, which goes into many of the things that made up of, of petro, right? The petrochemical industry, no, none of that. It doesn't have anything to do with the feeds and the feedstock that we give our cows that we have to then turn around and, and, and utilize for food sources and corn and for chickens and things of that nature. No, 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 no. Let's strip it out because that's something we can look at because the rest of the stuff is a little bit more... Stable, not really. You know, rents, housing, shelter, uh, you know, those aren't really that uh, significantly unvolatile. I mean, they are volatile, especially when we have interest rates on, you know, 30-year bonds hitting multi-decade high, 7.5% we saw recently. And we saw the crude oil moved up to, what, $90 and. Looks uh, like on its way to about 92. I tweeted that this week. It looks like uh, on its way in short order to 92 at that double top resistance from several months ago. Yet markets yawned about all this. And I think that what's happening right now, because we, we all like an explanation, I'm going to give you one right now because I know you've been wondering about it. Why? I think that there is a hope that this is just a lot of noise right now. We're going to filter out the noise and when we strip out the, these energy costs, everything's not as bad as it looks. And of course, this, this assumes that we don't pay for that stuff like I mentioned. But the inflation monster, it's still kind of around, you know? Uh, there, there's still a lot of concern right now with regard to, um, I think, the long-term nature of inflation, considering the fact that... Um, we still have a lot going on and a lot of growth. GDP is good in the U.S., et cetera. The only place in the, in the EU that's problematic right now looks like it's it's Germany. They're going to be headed for a recession, and that's going to cause some problems in the ECB, why they were raising in the face of Germany's slowdown. But again, it's more specific to the fact that they have more manufacturing than services, and that's a big issue when it comes to um, you know the circumstance related to, to Europe. All right, we're going to get to our guest. I want, to, I want to mention first, before we do so, I want to talk about interactive brokers once again, because interactive brokers clients earn up to 4.83% on their uninvested, instantly available cash reserves. In fact, you have to ask yourself, how much is your broker able to pay you? Interactive brokers, prudent and conservative risk management uniquely positions IBKR to pay you far higher interest. That's just one of the many reasons clients use interactive brokers to trade stocks, 
options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more. Of course, we know that rates are subject to change. I want you to go over to IBKR. I want you to go to IBKR.com slash interest rates to learn more about this. You'll thank me when you do. And we welcome Eric Townsend from the Macro Voices podcast, which has been uh, the third time he's been on. And by by the way, uh, Eric. uh, Yes, sir. I've never been on your podcast. Well, you haven't. No, maybe. Just saying. I mean. I have have nothing to do with that. Patrick (laughs) Ceresna does all the, the guest booking. All right, Patrick, if you're listening. Uh, availability for some time in the future. But anyway, no, you you were on last in February. We had a good time talking about uh, all sorts of things. I want to get back to that. So, But before we do that, hello to you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. It's great to be back on. So, Thanks for having me. Nothing like nothing like putting your guest up against a wall to start a, a show, you know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the things you talked about back in February, uh, it was a different time, right? It was... It was a time when oil was sort of meandering, and we saw that um, it was the start of this. This con- I think it was the start of the hey strategic petroleum reserves, or somewhere in the midst of it. Uh, you know, we're going to do something about it. We're going to get rid of it because the theory was back then, oh, we could let go of the strategic p- petroleum reserves to knock prices down, because if you actually release excess oil on the market, supply on the market means lower cost of oil. Which okay, check, check, check. Nobody considered, or at least the brilliant folks in Washington didn't consider that when you need to start buying it back, that is taking supply off of the market, which would reverse that. Anyway, we talked about some of that. I want to get back to this um, peak clean energy. Let's pick up where we left off on peak clean energy theory, which is something we talked about. I would like you to re-explain it, and then we can go from there on the show. Sure. Let's go back to uh, all the way to 2006 when Al Gore does his film about global warming. Oh, yeah. I I looked at that and I said, okay, I don't know if I buy this, but I'm very curious. I want to find out. So I start looking at this question of is global warming uh, something that's caused by human beings or isn't it? What's the real bottom line here, which was the question everybody wanted to answer. The, the conclusion I reached pretty quickly, and this goes back to 2007, if I remember right, was it actually doesn't matter. And the reason I say that is not that it isn't important, but as I learned about peak oil and what I call peak cheap oil, which is my own extension of, of the theory of peak oil, I realized that there's something much more important or that's that's going to essentially force this issue of energy transition, whether climate change is man-made or not. And what was going on at the time in 2006, 7, uh, 8 in that time frame is oil prices were starting to come up and there were these guys that were pushing a theory called peak oil. And what they were saying, it, it was not a prediction that the world was running out of oil. A lot of people thought it was, but it was, it was not that. It was a prediction that the rate at which we can extract oil from the Earth's crust has certain limits on it, and we're going to hit those limits, and we're going to get to this point where even though there's plenty of oil 
in Earth's crust that could still be produced in theory, we're not going to be able to get it out as quickly as, as we want. These guys were all predicting an energy crisis. The, the smartest guy in the room at the time was Dan Jurgen, who uh, is very well known in the energy space. And he said, look, you guys are basically right in your theories, but you're way early. This is going to happen, but not till the 2030s. And when I heard that, I just thought, okay, the, the peak oil community is having this big debate about whether it's going to happen in 2008 or it's going to happen in 2030. And I'm just thinking, I know it's going to take decades to replace all the vehicles that are running on fossil fuels with something else. It's going to take a lot longer than 2030 to transition the global economy off of fossil fuels. So I realized we have this kind of zombie crisis. I knew it was coming years and years into the future, which is someday we've got to have an energy crisis, which is when we get to what I call the peak cheap oil energy crisis, where the cost of there's always more oil to be found, but the cost of finding and producing that oil gets more and more expensive over time. So as energy gets more and more expensive, it becomes more and more crippling to the global economy. And eventually, I think we're going to have a global energy crisis in the mid to late 2020s, which will actually have been caused by climate policy. The, the Just Stop Oil movement is putting the cart before the horse. They're trying to get rid of oil before, and I'm all for getting rid of oil, but they want to get rid of oil before finding a viable replacement. And that's crazy. That's like, you know, you don't like pollution, so you're going to stop breathing in order to make a point. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make your point. It does the opposite. Yeah. And I think that's where Just Stop Oil is, is they, they've got, you know, their heart's in the right place. So peak cheap oil is basically an expectation that the cost of energy is going to continue to get more and more expensive. So whether you believe in climate change as an existential threat to humanity or you don't, we're going to have to replace oil and gas as our primary energy supply, no matter what, anyway. So, you know, if you don't believe in in uh climate change, then learn about peak cheap oil. And what you're going to realize, and this is where I think there's an opportunity to overcome all of this divisiveness that we have in society. We've gotten to the point where the climate uh, community, you know, kind of hates the anti-climate community. And there's all of this, this animosity. And what I'm trying to get people to realize is whether your reason for thinking we need energy transition is all about climate change, or if it's all about peak cheap oil, it doesn't matter. We've got the same goal. Let's work together toward replacing oil and gas with something better. And so that's that's pretty much everything that I focused on ever since 2007 or so when I figured this stuff out. But isn't is doesn't it seem logical? It may not be right, but logical, okay? <laughs> That there is a limited supply of oil. I mean, it took millions of years, from what I know about oil, it took millions of years through the compression process of, 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 you know, of organic matter to get to certain areas of the crust of the earth to make the oil that may or may not be there at, at this point. And we're, you know, in a matter of, I don't know, 200 years, because that's how long, you know, maybe, well, it's not 200 years, but less than that. But let's just go out 200 years uh, into the future that, that is being extracted for the use in, you know, ICEs um, and other, not, not only that, but other other things like petrochemicals, et cetera. Uh, is, is there, is the, we have to think that there's a, uh, a limit 
No. Well, there is someday an, an absolute limit of how much oil is in Earth's crust, but we're never going to get anywhere close to that because long before we get to it, we're going to get to the point where it's so expensive that we're forced to pursue better alternatives. So the way to think about it is like an apple tree. You, you walk out in the backyard, you got an apple tree in your backyard. All you got to do to make an apple pie is reach out and grab that low-hanging fruit off the bottom branch. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. Well, you know, if you use up all of the low hanging fruit, now you're going to need a ladder and it's going to get a little bit more work. And eventually you're going to need a tall ladder and eventually you're going to need to learn to time a climb a tree and get a climbing strap and, you know, worry about what happens if you fall off the tree and everything else. So it gets more and more expensive. Oil is something that we've had the luxury for really the, the last 150 years of being able to walk out in the backyard and just pick the low-hanging fruit off the tree. That was conventional oil production. That pretty much peaked out around 2005. Since then, what we've been relying on for growth and just for really maintaining the stability of the supply that we already have, before you even worry about growing the supply, uh, what, what we have... Yeah, sorry, lost my train of thought there. What we're talking, I mean, no, but but the point is though. Let me just stop you for a second, because and, and you can regroup on that. But the point is that you know, if in fact we look for other alternatives with this, right? And if in fact we go and we're looking at um, that that one day, someday, maybe it will run out, and we go and we realize beforehand it gets so expensive. What happens to places like Saudi Arabia and OPEC in the areas of the Middle East that rely on that for their business? I mean, is this like, is, is it, okay, is Saudi Arabia the next blockbuster? Well, I think, you know, this is a fascinating separate topic is what's going to happen with Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, because these are both countries that have huge, huge amounts of wealth that they've earned by being in the oil business for the last 50 years or 100 years, whatever it is. Uh, all of the sudden, they've realized that this is real, that the age of oil is starting to wind down. They've made announcements that they want to be in the energy business for the long haul, which is exactly the right thing for them to be saying. So I listen to their statements and I hear them saying things like, we want to be leaders in nuclear energy for the long term. Like that's a strategic thing for Saudi Arabia to do. Okay, perfect. Brilliant strategy. I'm, I'm rooting for them. And then I hear what they're doing. They're hiring South Koreans to come in and build an old school pressurized water reactor. So they're going to have a nuclear power plant like other people have one. Okay. Is that getting into the nuclear energy business and being a leader in it? Mm -hmm. Or is that just outsourcing, hiring people outside of your country to come build something that I'm not sure why you would really even need if you're Saudi Arabia and you've got lots of energy in the form of oil. So what doesn't make sense to me is I think Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates both ought to be very aggressively acquiring advanced nuclear startups and saying, hey, guys, you want to do molten salt reactors. You want to do all this stuff that the U.S. regulators aren't quite ready for yet. You know, come and work for us. We're going to uh, we're going to acquire your company. We're going to relocate or maybe we'll keep you where you want to live. If you're in Europe, if you're in the United States, wherever you're at. But we're going to allow you to test your reactors uh, in our country. We're going to provide a place in the middle of the desert where you can test your reactors. And we're going to basically leapfrog the West and take over the advanced nuclear industry by acquiring it and seducing those people to come and, and you know, work for the Saudis, work for the Arabs to allow them to be the, the leaders in nuclear energy. That's the strategy that 
I think makes sense for the, the Arabs to pursue. It's what they've announced that they're doing. But the only thing I see them actually doing in terms of taking actions is hiring South Koreans to come build a, a nuclear power plant for them, which doesn't make sense to me. So I'm not sure if they're just, you know, they're thinking about it, but they haven't figured it out yet. Um, they should call me. I, I want to run the portfolio for them. hundred billion bucks. And I will. I know exactly which companies to acquire in order <laughs> this, to make them leaders. It, of the so, it sounds like it's Philip Morris buying Jewel, right? It's like. Well, I know we got to be out of the regular cigarette business. What are we going to do? Oh, let's get that other kind of almost sort of different kind of cigarette that maybe will replace it. Well, you would think so. But, you know, I've been talking to all of the molten salt reactor startups, which is where I consider to be the, the hottest thing going in nuclear right now. And I'm talking to the CFOs about, you know, are you, what are you doing in your capital raise? What, you know, and who's interested? Where are you getting interest? I haven't heard anybody tell me that they've got Saudis or uh, Emiratis interested in any of their deals. I haven't heard that from from anyone. Now, there is a a definite culture in the nuclear industry that you don't want to deal with third countries. You don't want to go to the Democratic Republic of the Congo because oh. they offered you a, a license great, great on your deal. reactor. <laughs> That's not a, 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 you know, from a, it would be considered very irresponsible in, in the eyes of the rest of the nuclear industry. If you went and took a nuclear reactor to a place like that, uh, would people view Saudi Arabia because they're now kind of allied in terms of energy policy with Russia? Is that dealing with an enemy? Uh, if you're, you know, if you were to say, hey, they, they want to work with us to to test our, take a company that's in Europe, say, like Copenhagen Atomics, that's making uh, molten salt reactors fueled by thorium, super exciting stuff. They need a place to be able to test that, a cooperative regulator. If Saudi Arabia wants to be their cooperative regulator, you know, is that dealing with, uh, you know, with with a, a party that their government would see as the other guys? Uh, I don't know. The world's changing really quickly, so it's going to be very interesting to see how how we navigate this field. Mm. So nuclear obviously is something that that I've talked about a lot. You know, the the my suggestion about nuclear in the United States is to change the word. Don't call it nuclear power anymore. Because everybody gets the, the, the every time you say the word nuclear. All they think is they see is a you know a bomb uh, exploding in Hiroshima, right? You know, or, or or Fukushima or Chernobyl. I mean, this is the kind every time you mention it, they should call it something else, like you know, like I don't know, like big power or some other, you know, new new clearer power. How about limitless clean energy from thorium? That's my yeah. Favorite make some phrase. kind of acronym from it. Yep. The, the, unfortunately, nuclear regulators will force you to use the word nuclear in certain contexts, in certain legal disclosures and so forth. You can't call it something else. That's against the law. But we need a, a complete overhaul of nuclear regulation is what we need. Uh, a lot of this was really created in the 1970s, as far as I can tell, at the behest of big oil. There were the Nixon administration, you know, essentially killed nuclear energy. It was politicized in the 1976. It was the uh, China syndrome that did it. Well, and, and then the, the 1976 <laughs> right? presidential race uh, had a lot to do with it, too. It was it was several things. That, that took it out. But one of the things I, I've tried to do in my documentary series is to explain the history of how we got here. Yeah, we've got meltdowns. Well, that's a really nasty thing. Shouldn't we do something to 
designed some technology that makes meltdowns not just less likely, but impossible. So mm-hmm. it cannot ever happen again. Well, the answer to that is, yeah, they figured that out in like 1958. They commissioned a project that began in 1960 to solve that problem. They built the reactor that solves that problem in 1964. They turned it on in 65. They proved a complete and total solution to the entire nuclear meltdown problem with a liquid-fueled and molten salt-cooled reactor. Uh, that that combination completely eliminates any possibility of meltdown risk. So they solved that problem, but they made a fatal mistake. They solved that problem in Tennessee. And during the Nixon administration, everybody in charge of the Atomic Energy Commission was a number of different congressmen from California. There's actually a phone call where uh, Congressman Craig Hosmer is on with President Nixon. And they make an agreement on the phone. Look, we're going to kill everything in nuclear power outside of California. We want those jobs to be for Californians. And after that phone call, they completely shut down the research project that had solved the nuclear meltdown problem completely. They threw the research away. And that research was resurrected by a a former NASA researcher named Kirk Sorensen, who's trying to commercialize this technology. He goes and makes a bunch of videos, puts them on YouTube, trying to get people's attention, saying, look, we can't throw this away. This is the most important research the United States government ever did on nuclear energy for the, the private sector. We can't throw it away. It's so important. Well, Kirk succeeds at getting the attention of government employees with his videos. Just one little problem. They were employees of the Chinese government. So the Chinese download all the documents. They've got copies of the research from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Ever since 2011, when they saw Sorensen's videos, they've been prototyping molten salt, thorium-fueled, high, super, like, leading-edge nuclear reactors in China based on American designs because the guy who was trying to get the American government's attention to, to wake them up to how badly they've screwed up this policy accidentally did it in a way where the Chinese picked up on it and said, if the Americans are too dumb to build this thing, we're going to build it. So they've already built it. It was just uh, approved last year to be turned on. So this stuff is going on and nobody's paying attention to it. So you've mentioned the story several different times and I've been like, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I'm a little bit, uh, well, not knowing much about it at all. And then, you know, what what's the differentials between the uranium uh, standard, right, or that's being used the, or whatever else is being used these days? Okay, there's only, if you want to make energy from anything involving a nuclear fission chain reaction, there's only three choices of fuel, and that's plutonium, uranium, and thorium. So it has to be one of those choices. When they were trying to figure all of this out, it was the height of the Cold War. And one of the things that is a feature of uranium, particularly uh, if you make a fancy reactor, which is designed for the purpose uh, of breeding uh, uranium, you can turn it into plutonium and make plutonium for nuclear bombs with a special kind of reactor called a plutonium production reactor. So 
if you're trying to make nuclear weapons, and of course, if you're trying to do that, you're increasing the risk of bad guys getting a hold of the material that you're manufacturing for the purpose of making nuclear weapons. Uh, you definitely want to be on a uranium fuel cycle in your nuclear reactor because uranium is what you can uh, go through this breeding process to convert into plutonium, mm -hmm. that plutonium can then be purified to make nuclear weapons. Well, here's a crazy thought. What if you're this crazy guy in a laboratory in the United States government who thinks, well, if we're making um, nuclear energy for the civilian market, we shouldn't be focused on uh, on nuclear weapons, we should be focused on making it as safe as we possibly can. That guy's name was Alvin Weinberg. They fired him for that attitude. They actually said, Alvin, if you're concerned about the safety of these things, we don't have room for you. You're, you're, you're done in, in the nuclear energy program. Sorry, you're kicked out. That was the guy who invented the liquid-fueled molten salt reactor. And I guess going back to your, your actual question about thorium, what I think a lot of people in the energy discussion are missing is they're conf they're kind of conflating thorium and molten salt cooling to be the same thing and they're really different so a lot of the benefits that i'm talking about of a newer better kind of nuclear reactor that can't melt down the whole part about not you know being immune to meltdown it's liquid fueled molten salt cooled reactors whether it's thorium or uranium or some other fuel doesn't matter it's really the fact that it's a molten salt reactor that's liquid fueled that gives you that benefit now if you are using uranium you've still got this nuclear proliferation risk that the bad guys could get their hands on it and somehow maybe turn yeah, that the, you know, say uh, say, that say yeah the, the, the reactor's not working we don't know why meanwhile taking the uranium, refining it into, uh, you know, weapon grade, right? And then utilizing it that way and uh, kind of sneaking out the back exactly. door concept, right? So in the 1960s, this guy Weinberg figures out that you can use a different fuel cycle where you start with thorium, which, by the way, is also four times more abundant than uranium in Earth's crust. So we're not going to run out of it. You start with thorium. You end up with this other fissile isotope of uranium called uranium-233. That works just as well as uranium-235, which is what the uranium reactors use in terms of uh, sustaining the nuclear chain reaction. There's only one problem with it, which is you can't use it to make plutonium. You, you can't get any plutonium out. So if your goal was to make a bomb, you're screwed. It, mm. it doesn't doesn't give you any plutonium. Right. Well, back in the 1960s, Weinberg says, this is great because it's going to solve the weapons proliferation problem. They fired him as soon as they heard that. Right. Or, or maybe it was just because he was in the wrong state. I can't tell exactly why they fired Ellen <laughs> Weinberg, but they got rid of him because yeah. he was not with the program in terms of what they wanted to do. The thing is, and I think what the people deserve to know is we solved all of these problems with nuclear energy, but these solutions I'm talking about, it's not like, oh, the nuclear, the new reactors, the ones we've got now are all better. We've never implemented these solutions I'm talking about. All of the latest, the brand new reactor that they're building in Waynesboro, Georgia right now, actually, I guess they just finished building it. That's a pressurized water reactor. It's not this new technology that I'm talking about because the new technology I'm talking about got frozen in 1971. And ever since then, there's been no framework for the government to even consider anything other than a uranium-fueled pressurized water reactor. So you, you can't go and say, you know, let's get the NRC to approve our, our 
you know, molten salt reactor. Now, Bill Gates is taking that on. He's actually got enough money that I think he's going to push through that and say, look, we are going to develop a molten salt cooled uh, reactor. His is not thorium fueled, it's uranium fueled, but it's a very advanced uh, reactor. So the, the solution to all of the safety problems in nuclear energy, those solutions were all engineered 50 years ago. They were not implemented because of government inaction. That's how badly the government has screwed this up. Wow. It, it's, it, it's actually mind-blowing to think about the simplicity and complexity uh, and the red tape politics involved in all this to a point that, you know, we're trying to get um, clean energy, but, but going into things like wind power, which is so incredibly great sounding, but so inefficient. Right. And, and not to mention the fact that the biggest country in the world uh, who supplied this, Germany, uh, is having all sorts of problems because the companies that that created this, uh, they, there's some flaws in these. And, and it, it, fixing fixing a giant wind turbine is not like just, oh, tighten that screw or replace that bolt. It's a lot that goes into that, each one of them. And, oh, and, and the cost factors of it uh, for maintenance, upkeep uh, and, and what you get out of it is just really poor. I happen to agree, but especially as I've sort of become an activist in this space, I've changed my attitude a little bit. And the way I look at this is, look, if people want to invest their own capital in building more clean energy, if they think wind is the better way to do it, look, spend your capital on wind. I'm going to spend my capital on deep geothermal and nuclear, mostly nuclear and mostly advanced nuclear, because that's where I think the most promise is. But I consider anybody who's building green energy to be my friend. Uh, you know, if, if somebody no, else I, I thinks they the, want no, I to do that. it with windmills, I, right. I think they're missing the point. But okay, you know, if if you want it, it's not hurting anything. Yeah. So so let's talk about oil, though. Let's talk about investments. I mean, where, first of all, let's get back. Let's let's just talk about oil for a second. Then I want to talk about. Let's make sure we don't miss the discussion on. Okay, average Joe out there looking at all of this sounds great. They love this idea. What do they do? I mean, they they going to put their money in. Uh, you know, FPNL Next Energy, which which has uh, a bunch of nuclear uh, facilities they run, or if they have run, or you know, they're, they're thinking about running too, and who knows what's going to happen? Um, or are we going to look at the the, uh, the builders? But let's get to that in a second. Let's talk about oil for a moment. Approaching ninety dollars on the WTI this week, uh, and this is interesting because just recently, on top of the fact that we're refilling the SPR. Saudi Arabia's and OPEC said, you know, hey, we're going to keep the volunt quote unquote voluntary one million barrel cut per per month. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's going to we'll see how that goes. And oil is moving up, even though China's slowing down, Europeans areas slowing down. Uh, Japan may be coming up a little bit, but the, you know, and, and, and the summer's over and the summer's over. That's the other thing, right? Summer's over. Well, relatively over, but the point is that was the peak driving season. And, and all this is going on with the backdrop of, you know, airlines now having big problems because they got to cut their profit, uh, guidance because of costs. Uh, where, uh, I mean, I saw the chart. I just looked very briefly. It looked like, you know, a very basic 92 top end on the, on the near term, just from a simple line drawing of triple tops over a recent period. But, you know, beyond that, uh, it, it also seems like there's a little bit of a, hey, you know what, screw off. OPEC and Saudi Arabia saying, I know we want to make some money here. And they're getting back at all the losses they took back in 2022. And it's like, you know, what the hell? Everybody else seems to be doing it, you know, screwing 
everybody. You know, th this would be the equivalent, in my opinion, of during a hurricane, or generally speaking, maybe not that harsh, but during a bad time, um, you know, price gouging going on is what is happening with the supply cuts from Saudi Arabia. Now, turning it over to you, where is oil going with this recent move? Well, I think oil is definitely going much higher. The question is, you know, how, how long does it take to get there and does it go lower first? We're clearly on a tear here. I have predicted for more than a year now that the market will be supply constrained. That's what this story is going to be about as a supply story. But the thing is, when you've got a lot of imminent predictions of recession, oncoming recession, which everybody was predicting six months ago, it's, it seems like now the soft landing is the end thing. Um, if everybody's predicting recession, it's really hard for oil to rally into that environment. And uh, I think that Saudi Arabia was actually reserved a little bit and not cutting as much as they would have liked to have cut because they didn't want to get into a pissing contest with the White House. Now that I, I think they're feeling their oats a little more, they feel like they've got room to assert a little more authority as the market is firming up. We're also coming into winter season. And I think that they are going to be uh, more demanding. The, the Or as you alliance. say, as piss away, fellas. Well, you know, there was <laughs> right. an alliance between Saudi Arabia and the United States for decades where, you know, it, the American president could call the head of state in Saudi Arabia and say, look, as your long term partner here and military partner, um, we really need to ask you to, to change your policy and cut us a break on some oil prices. And, you know, it's kind of that hint of you better not mess with us because we're the biggest military force in the world. You don't want to be not on our side. It seems pretty clear to me that Saudi Arabia is signaling, no, we're not going to be loyalists to the United States. And if we're forced to pick a side and be somebody's friend, we're going to be Russia's friend before we're going to be the United States friend. That's at least my read of the situation. I certainly don't think they've ever announced that, but that's the way I read their posturing. Uh, I don't think they're about to change their policy for the U.S. So I think it's a question of they're going to get higher prices as they're able to. And I think the the question of as they're able to is really going to be a, 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 a question of whether or not we're able to get out of this recession everybody was expecting that didn't really happen. Uh, is it still coming? Is the the shoe about to the second shoe about to drop and the bottom's going to fall out of the market and and all of a sudden we're going to be in deep recession? If that happens, it puts everything on hold for maybe a couple of years. But absent that recession, I think oil prices go much higher. And I think that, unfortunately, an alliance between Saudi, Russia, and China puts those countries in a pretty darn strong negotiating position. You know, position. look, look, the other point is that we don't really have to talk about this. This is the wacko way out prediction concept theory. You know, you had to wonder if some of the what's gone on with Russia and Ukraine, you know, we all thought everybody, I don't care who you were, maybe you're different, but everybody else I know in the world, oh, Russia's going to invade Ukraine, two weeks, story's done. Right. Russia, major power, military might is going to oh, go I in there. I never thought that. Oh, a lot of people did. A lot of people did. And this thing is dragging out forever. You got to wonder, though, if there's some thought of, well, maybe some of these major countries aren't as strong as they say they are. Now, I don't know who's, who's thinking that about the U.S., but it is who, know, who knows what the thinking is um, with regard to Saudi and who they're aligning with. And 
Uh, that would be just, I don't know. It would seem to be a very weird situation. Let's talk about energy transition. Let's get back to, no, no, let's, let's not get back to that yet. Let's talk about what we want to talk about, which was where are the beneficiaries? What did the average investor do? Who's not a uh, hedge fund? Who's not a, um, you know, a, a, a major private equity slash in the know first line. What, what do people, what, what, what should the listeners of this show be looking at in terms of, uh, this this transition concept, right? This this peak chip oil, this this uh, changeover to to more environmentally friendly energy sources. Well, one side of this is I think that oil and gas prices are set to go much higher in coming years, and the reasons that I say that are the whole world is trying to making the mistake of wanting to believe that what should be true is true. It would be wonderful if we could flip a switch and say energy transition, good idea, let's stop using fossil fuels and use clean energy instead and just, you know, have all the systems in the world ready to support that the next morning. That would be great. That that's that's fantasy. That's not what's going to happen. So we're making decisions like outlawing the purchase of, you know, vehicles that are that are uh driven by internal combustion engines. Well, that sounds like maybe a, a, a strategic way to support an energy transition agenda if you had first taken the step of figuring out how you were going to create new clean energy to replace the fossil oh, no, fuels we know that, that we you're know, outlawing. We, listen, we, we, you know. We, know, we, we know the stupidity that's going on, right? The idea that, oh, we got to, you know, we, we have this initiative, but just no way of getting there. There's no plan, right? Besides somehow kicking up these ideas um, and and with Al Gore, with the concept that he did a lot of stuff for financial gain for himself, uh, back in the day, there was some of that that went on. Um, but and 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 that that they're not thinking about you know the the back end, right? The re repercussions that it has on other areas. But 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 there's got to be. I mean, beyond just uh, I don't well, there's know. There's two big things that that happen. The price of oil goes up because everybody planned poorly for it, and then the things that solve this problem are going to be extremely profitable to invest in because they're going to solve the biggest problem that humanity will face in the 21st century. What are those industries? Well, first of all, let's remember that the thing that happens first is the oil prices go to the go to the moon. So I think that betting on oil prices going high is definitely okay. the, the place that, to that, start that's, thinking right. about that's this. That's good. Now, I, I think beyond what about, that- What about the you, old companies? Well, and that's the question then is, do you bet on the commodity with an ETF like USO that directs directly invests in the futures or do you invest in the companies? Hmm. I think the companies should be a, a bargain play here if things go the way I want them to, but that's putting a lot of hope into it. When I say I want them to, I think we need to really uh, rediscover and put a whole new value on our oil and gas industry and say, wait a minute, we need to do energy transition. One of the most important ways to do that, especially if you want to stick with pure renewables, is geothermal renewable energy. That requires essentially the same thing as oil and gas. you got to drill wells, but now they're geothermal wells instead of oil wells. You're drilling through dry rock instead of porous rock, but it's basically the same job. We've got an industry that's very well suited to doing that. We should be repurposing the oil and gas industry and turning them into the geothermal industry. Now, if you had oil prices going to the moon and you had repurposing of the industry to really get into the geothermal business, well, that's the the panacea. I don't think you can count on it going that way. Right. I would just yeah. make the bet on the 
you know, make the bet because the oil prices are going up. And if it happens to be that those companies end up becoming the providers of geothermal energy in the future, that's even better. Some of them, but some think, of them are doing a transition. I mean, some of them are not stupid. You know, oh, I mean, they're all talking about yeah. wanting to do that transition. The question is, who's going to actually be successful? Mm -hmm. And then in the nuclear space, this is so frustrating for me because I, I think the big play, and it's all this trade has already started to run, but I still think it's early in this story, is uranium mining stocks. And I hate investing in nuclear through uranium mining stocks because what I think is most exciting is the thorium and the the molten salt and the the breeder reactors that used five percent as much fuel as the old kind of reactors do that, that wouldn't need as much uranium. But you know what? That stuff's all a long ways off. The way to play uranium for the next, or I'm sorry, the way to play nuclear for the next several years is just uranium mining stocks. Is there an ETF that does uranium stocks? You know? Yeah, there's a couple of them. URNM for uranium yeah. and URA. And there's a whole debate in on the internet about which one is better. Well, URA I, I thought was the uh, commodity. Uh, I've lost track of exactly what URA is. URNM is uranium mining stocks. Right. I don't. Yeah. And, and I thought URA I, was the actual com, uh, tracking. Like no, you're th I think you're thinking of SPUT, which is the uh, oh, the Sprott Physical Uranium yes. Trust. Yes. Yes. yes, yes. Uh, so that's uh, U.UN is the ticker for that one. That's the actual commodity. The other one for people who are uh, in Europe is YCA is the uh, the European fund, which is basically just physical uranium. That's what they buy. But the uranium mining shares, I think that URA and URNM are both ETFs that are uranium mining shares. What's the difference between the two of those? There's a whole cult among uranium mining investors about which one is better and different people. And by the think, way, these, these, I don't know. Uranium, uranium, uranium investors, uh, uranium stocks, I should say, not for the weak of heart. These things no. can be, <laughs> these well, can move around. Yeah, and that's this really to me. It, it brings in a question of what do you think of the broader market? Do you think that the the bull market? Or I'm sorry. Do you think that the bear market is over and that we're, we're going to see a soft landing and new all time highs, or do you think that we're going to see a resumption and maybe the the final low is not yet in on the bear market? If you think the low is not yet in on the bear market, I can tell you right now, uranium stocks have so much retail participation, and it's basically the people who used to be gold bugs or uranium bugs now. Right. The the guys who who have a, a bad habit of getting a little bit too exuberant, too overexposed on margin accounts, uh, over leveraged, getting margin called, being forced out at the bottom, that 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 same kind of characteristic that you'd see in gold mining shares is definitely present in uranium mining shares, which means if you don't have any yet and mm. you think that's coming, mm -hmm. um, that that's what I was waiting for. Well, right. I, it's, I'm kicking myself because I perfectly timed, I, I'm, I'm pat myself on the back here for a second. I perfectly timed that April, May low in uranium shares. And I bought my first tranche with 7% of my intended allocation to the sector and then watched it all go up 40 to 60% in the last <laughs> couple months. And I'm like, I, I could have at least gone in 10 percent yeah exactly but, but we're talking but all the things we're talking about you have a new docu-series i know that you put out can you tell me about that a little bit sure basically what this is about is i really feel and you said you hit the crux of this al gore did a wonderful thing to wake people up to the need for energy transition but like everybody else he had a self-serving agenda he wanted mm -hmm. to put himself in the whole carbon credit business 
And everybody has a hidden agenda. The politicians have a hidden agenda. The politicians are, in my opinion, really dividing society, and they're pitting a lot of the climate-concerned uh, people against others. And there's, they're, they're encouraging them through some of these things like Just Stop Oil, where they're they're saying, you know, let's see if we can, you know, go to museums and, and throw, you know, we're going to vandalize artworks that are hundreds of years old by by throwing soup on them and, and just doing nasty stuff. Why are people behaving this way? And I, I just said, you know, all of these people with with climate change on their mind have their hearts in exactly the right place, but they're being lied to about what the real motivations are. And they're also being lied to about how little progress is being made and what it's really going to take to pull this off. And particularly why wind and solar is a great start, but it's not going to be anything close to enough to pull off this entire mm-hmm. energy transition. Mm-hmm. I decided not to get too political and try to take on, you know, motivations of politicians and what like, making accusations. That's and smart. So forth. That's smart because people turn off. They, they, people just turn off. Yeah. And I'm trying to just take the look. If if you are persuaded that that climate change poses an existential threat to humanity, then you already believe in energy transition. And I'm here to tell you what it's going to take to pull it off and why some of the plans that have been uh, proposed are not sufficient and why they're not going to work. I'm not going to question your decision for why you believe in climate yeah. change. Where, where That's do people, not where, really where, my motive. Where do people my find this? Tell me, tell me how people find this. EnergyTransitionCrisis.org, or you can go on YouTube and and just put in Energy Transition Crisis. That's good. So we'll put that. Uh, we we have the links to your websites and Macro Voices and all that's going on out there. And we'll make sure it's on the episode for the uh, the show notes for episode number eight thirty four eight hundred thirty four. So go over to the DiscipleInvestor.com and check that out. Eric Townsend we covered a lot of territory, didn't we? Absolutely, my wow. pleasure. Good stuff. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Have a good one. It's- my pleasure. Right. Thank you, sir. All right, bye-bye. That was a good discussion, I thought, talking about uh, uranium. I didn't know we were going to get into all of that, actually. I thought we were really going to focus in on oil and some of the, you know, and, and gas, for that matter, and maybe some of the alts, you know, and some of the other areas. I didn't really think we'd get that deep into talking about, um, you know, the the deep geothermal renewable energies and all of the nuclear and the opportunities there. But that was great. So definitely uh, check out his uh, docu-series, mini docu-series that he has out now. And uh, again, uh, you can find that by just, I would go to YouTube and just put his name in, uh, Eric Townsend with a K, by the way, E-R-I-K, Eric Townsend, T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D. And uh, thanks for joining me this week and every week. We're going to see you again next week with another great guest. And we'll see what happens by then. We'll know what the Fed has done in the face of all the information they have, where they stuck at the current rate, or maybe increased a little bit. Who knows? Thanks again for joining me. I'll see you again next week. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. 
No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company. 